Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, we're sitting down with Joe Kotner from Heroku, discussing everything web and deploying to Heroku. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Yeah, thank you for taking up the invite. I know that you and I spoke back in March, I think it was. It was, it was DevOps US. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when we started to discuss a little bit this idea of uh, Kotlin support for Heroku. And I'm really amazed to see how much has been done in so little time. But we'll, we'll get to that uh, <laughs> in a moment to, to realize why that is. But tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is. Well, so I'm the uh, JVM languages owner at uh, Heroku. Uh, Heroku is a platform as a service, uh, a place to deploy your application in the cloud. And I'm responsible for the uh, entire Java ecosystem running on that platform. Uh, so if you've ever tried deploying to Heroku and it didn't work, uh, that's my fault. <laughs> that you, we come knocking on your door, right? Right, yeah. Uh, my background is in uh, both Java uh, historically uh, and also the various JVM languages. Uh, so I had a consulting career for a while as a, uh, a sort of JRuby developer consultant and uh, wrote a couple books on JRuby. I'm sure that pretty much everyone is familiar with Heroku, but can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do? Right, so we, uh, we are a platform as a service. Uh, so we curate uh, a stack that you can run your application on without having to do any kind of operational work. Uh, so you don't have to manage any infrastructure. You don't have to monitor your app. That's handled by us and our platform. And what that allows you to do is focus on writing code and building applications, solving those uh, problems that you know, you're trying to build a business around or, or whatever. Um, so when you deploy to Heroku, uh, most people push their code up to our servers. We detect what kind of uh, application is, if it's Maven or Gradle. Uh, we build it accordingly, and then we run it in our containerized uh, environment. Uh, so when you're running on Heroku, you're focusing on processes as opposed to uh, servers and infrastructure. And it's been around for a, quite a good number of years, right? Yeah, that's right. I think uh, the company was founded in 2007, so I think we're in our 10th year of existence. Uh, we were actually the, the first platform as a service, kind of invented that genre, uh, we came out shortly after uh, Amazon was uh, Amazon launched Amazon Web Services, uh, and the goal was just to make Amazon Web Services easier to use. If I'm not mistaken, the because I remember Heroku going back to the days of Ruby, and it felt if, I, I kind of think like was the first target platform that you had like the first. Uh, Target was it was it for Ruby or did it originate from something else? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, when we first started, uh, I think we were Ruby on Rails only. Uh, so it was a platform as a service for Ruby on Rails. But uh, the uh, the first languages that we branched out to when we became a polyglot platform were uh, Java and Clojure. Uh, I think that was 2011 or so. Uh, but since then, we've added support for uh, Node.js, Python, PHP, Go. Uh, and because of the way our deployment mechanism works, uh, which is a, a tool called BuildPacks, um, you can deploy any kind of application. So we have a great suite of uh, third-party support for uh, languages like Elixir and, and uh, other things. 
Okay. And I remember when I was dabbling in Ruby many, many years ago, around that time, I guess when Heroku kind of came out around, I one of the things that was really amazing was how easy it was, right? I remember seeing... Uh, one, I can't remember one of the, I think it was Neil Ford or someone that was showing me like saying, oh, look, look, this is Ruby on Rails. This is awesome. And, and look how easily you can just deploy to the cloud. Back then, of course, you probably wouldn't even call it a cloud. <laughs> it's like deploy and some people can access it. But it really was a smooth experience. And I was doing .NET and I'm like, yeah, that, yeah. Now I'm going to go and configure Internet Information Server. And oh, yeah, I forgot 600 configuration files. And so... Uh, it was it was kind of amazing at the time, and yeah. So congrats on that. Thanks. Yeah, developer experience is always at the forefront of every decision we make about every product. Our goal is to make it frictionless. Yeah, and so you've branched out into other languages, as you said. You've branched out to Java and uh, Clojure. So I'm essentially guessing pretty much any language on the JVM right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all the major ones, uh, Clojure, Scala, Groovy, JRuby, and Java. Yeah. And coming to Kotlin, when you and I were speaking at the show in the U.S., I said to you guys, I said, hey, you know, it would be great if uh, we could support Kotlin here. And I remember you went and said, okay, I'll take a look at it. So tell us exactly how much uh, effort that involved. Like, what, what was involved in getting Kotlin supported on Heroku? Well, first of all, even before you approached me, uh, we had customers that were running Kotlin on Heroku. Uh, so when I looked at it, uh, there there really wasn't much to do. Um, one of the great things about Kotlin is that it really embraces the Java ecosystem. Uh, so when you're using Kotlin, you're not making some uh, gigantic shift in tooling or just other ecosystem pieces. Uh, so our customers that are that are using Kotlin uh, are deploying with either Maven or Gradle. Uh, they're using the build packs, the existing supported build packs that I mentioned. Um, and at the end of the day, it's a, a JVM process running on our platform. So from the operational side, from my side, um, it doesn't look that different. Uh, and that that's true with a lot of JVM languages, uh, but more so with, with Kotlin because uh, it just sort of seamlessly fits into that all that existing tooling. So essentially you're saying that from uh, engineering point of view, there really wasn't anything that needed to be done. That's right. Yeah. So then the effort, and I guess that, that when I approached you guys, because I was you know, browsing through the Heroku site and I kept seeing on the JVM side, you know, deploy your, I think it was kind of like, deploy your Java applications, deploy your Clojure applications, deploy your... Scala applications, and I, and I remember approaching you and say, I want to see Kotlin on there, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, can we get Kotlin on there? Uh, so really, it's more around just the work that was involved is mostly just providing guides for people to, or kind of saying to people that, hey, this is JVM-based, so whether you want to deploy Java or Clojure or Scala or Kotlin, it all just works, right? Yeah, right. It's I think it's three things. One is the the guides, um, the sort of introductory material, or even here's how you take uh, an existing Kotlin application and deploy it. Um, it's also communicating to people that it is a, a happy path. Uh, and then finally, it's just uh, making our support official. So when you have a Kotlin app running on Heroku, 
and uh, something goes wrong and you open a support ticket, um, we're going to handle that just like any other JVM language that we support. And I think that's a very important thing. I think that's probably one of the most important aspects of it, right? Because, I mean, look at the whole uh, noise that surrounded recently with Google saying that Kotlin is an official language. Mm -hmm. You know, many, many people had been using Kotlin on Android for a number of years, right? But right. it's that backing, so to speak, or saying that it's official, which kind of puts people's mind at ease. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So when you started to play with this, I mean, uh, I remember that your talk at, uh, at the conference was also around Kotlin. So how long have you been actually involved in Kotlin or playing with it? Well, I, I remember uh, first tinkering with it probably 2000, oh, I don't remember. I think it was about two or three years ago. Um, and I think the thing that I... I I was drawn to it. So I had already been doing work with other JVM languages and I, I was thinking to myself, do I really need to get into another JVM language? I think I've, I've got my fill. Uh, but the more I tinkered with it, uh, the more I realized that, that there, there was a problem it was solving. Uh, and on top of that, it was really, really easy for me to learn, especially knowing Java, knowing Scala, um, because it, it, it really borrows a lot from, uh, from what you're familiar with, um, so I found it I found it fairly easy to learn, um, and then I think I uh, took a break from it for a while. But I kept seeing, I kept having um, Heroku people who were interested in Heroku asking about it. I had uh, kept seeing buzz about it, and uh, thought maybe I should, you know, take another look. And as someone that was involved with JRuby, and mm -hmm. I, I mentioned that I'd like to ask you about this, uh, because you know recently Dan from Signal, uh, sorry, Dan from Basecamp, I keep putting yeah. up their um, blog site instead of the name of the company. He wrote about you know how Kotlin provides him happiness and referring to the whole thing that was going on with Rails and and Ruby that you know it's a language that just provides you this sense of uh, happiness when you're writing code in that language. So as someone that's dabbled or worked with JRuby, where do you see Kotlin? I mean, do, do you get the same feeling that you did with Ruby? I think I get a similar feeling. Um, I Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I do. Because when, when I first learned Ruby, uh, and I think a lot of Rubyists uh, say the same thing is, uh, you just you just have fun programming again, um, especially especially if you're coming from doing a lot of Java, and you slide into this uh, into the Ruby language, which is um, has a lot of syntactic sugar. Uh, it's a very flexible, malleable language, so it it really gets out of your way, lets you do what you need to do, and have fun. Uh, Kotlin is I think is the same way. You know you uh, you. Even, but it, it, it's the same way, but also it still remains very structured and uh, un, unlike Ruby, which is this very like unstructured world. Uh, so in both cases, it brings back that that fun, that joy of programming. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it takes you in two very different directions. Like, for example, I, you know, I, I did a lot of Ruby work. I, I was like a, a Ruby and JRuby consultant for a while. 
Um, but that world never really crossed over with my Java world because the the direction I was going with the Ruby stuff was just a completely different ecosystem. It was a different um, a different uh, state of mind for for how you build applications. Um, but with Kotlin, I think it retains that uh, that structure. So if if I was working on a very large team where I had a lot of people contributing to a code base, um, working with a language like Ruby becomes more difficult because there are, there are fewer contracts between all of the, the interactions in your code. Um, but with a language like Kotlin, I think it becomes easier to scale up. But still have fun. But from the perspective of you having fun, do you think that the fact that it's static language takes a little bit of that fun away or have you really seen that as an issue? It hasn't been an issue for me, although I think some of that is because having done a lot of work in scripted languages, uh, I very much at times miss, uh, miss that, uh, <laughs> that, that sort of other side of the world. Um, it's not all, it's not all bad, certainly. And when you were playing with Kotlin and deploying to Heroku, I remember that we had a few back and forth and with uh, Ilya also, my colleague, and you've been playing a little bit with a framework that is being developed primarily by Ilya, which is called Kator, right? Right. And uh, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think what's interesting about Kator is that, well, there's two things. One is that it's, um, it's not, so you can use Kotlin with all of your favorite uh, JVM frameworks. Um, in fact, when I was first learning it, um, Ilya took uh, a, the Spark framework and built a, um, uh, like a Ktor example of it, right? So we could either take this example in Spark and make it a Kotlin app, uh, or we can take a framework that's really intended to be built in Kotlin. So by doing that, I think you're, um, you're opening up more possibilities. Uh, so I think I think one of the examples that he showed me used coroutines, and it was really interesting, both how little code it was, but just how natural it felt. So I think there's a trade-off in we can use existing frameworks that are mature, powerful that we already understand, or we can use um, something like Ktor, which is going to be, um, I think like I don't want to say a more natural fit because, you know, using Kotlin with Spring Boot feels very natural too. But uh, having something that's designed from the ground up, uh, there's there's something there that that uh, makes it feel a little more native, I guess. If you're using Kotlin or planning to, make sure you check out KotlinConf, a conference taking place in sunny San Francisco on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2017. It's a two-day event packed with Kotlin content by industry experts with keynotes from Andre Breslav and Eric Meyer. So whether it's back-end, front-end, mobile, or native, Kotlin Conf is the place to be this year. That's KotlinConf, C-O-N-F dot com. Hope to see you there. Yeah. I mean, to just to be clear, you, you know, the, the example that you built 
was using Ktor, and I believe the blog post that you wrote about this was using Ktor as an example. But, but to be clear, that you know you can use any framework, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that you guys, uh, you know, people are deploying Spring applications, they're deploying Vertex applications, Spark, so, so anything that's JVM compatible. You know, you don't have to use Ktor to to deploy on Heroku. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and I think that I mean, I I wrote another framework in Kotlin, which was called Wasabi. And it was heavily inspired by Sinatra slash ExpressJS. And at some point, and also due to time restrictions, I kind of spoke to Ilya and I said, you know what, let's just kind of join efforts, you know, because Kato was inspired by Wasabi and, and here's you working on that and I'm working on this and, and it just doesn't make sense. And believe it or not, after that, I find so many people suddenly are using Wasabi. You know, you're, you're at this time. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to continue working on this. Oh, you're the person that's using it, you know. Um, but one of the things that people commented to me regarding, you know, this move from Wasabi to Ktor was that Ktor is a little bit too flexible, so to speak, or to put it another way, is too unopinionated if that makes sense. Like, it allows you to do the same thing in many different ways. I don't know if you share that opinion or not. Yeah, I definitely see, I I definitely see why, why people would feel that way. And I think that's, again, uh, a a trade-off, right? It's, um, and I guess it, it's similar to, like, Sinatra, as, as you mentioned, where, um, Depending on depending on what problem you're solving, you might do things a different way, but maybe more likely depending on you know what conventions you're used to. Um, so it, yeah, it gives you flexibility. I, I I think I think even though I saw that, it's, because I was learning from Ilya, like I, I probably didn't. I I saw the way he was doing things, and that was the way I was going to do things. So I didn't consider other paths as much. (laughs) And, uh, I think that's just a similar experience to what you'd have working on a, a team of people probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I guess, yeah. I mean, if you are, you're working closely with Ilya, then, uh, you probably, it was a little bit more opinionated based on what his opinions are, right? So I, and I keep saying to him, I'm like, Ilya, we need to put that down in writing, you know, at some point. So regarding actual, the actual work of like, you know, uh, sorry, the application. If I have a, an application built in Kotlin that I deploy to Heroku, you're offering this as a platform. So, what do I get? Do I do I still get access to you know to my logs? Do I use a, a generic log solution that you guys have? What is permissible? What is not permissible on the platform? Do I interact with any kind of database service I want, or do you offer a set stack? Can you give us a little bit more info on that? Sure. Right. So our our platform uh, goes all the way up to the JDK. So if there is a security update for the JDK, we apply that and your app picks it up automatically. Uh, Everything above that uh, is your application. Um, But we're also fairly opinionated about how that application should work. Um, We, about five years ago, uh, launched a manifesto called the 12-factor app that outlines some conventions you use uh, that we recommend uh, or we believe should be the way all applications, especially cloud applications, are deployed. Uh, so logging, as you mentioned, we actually encourage logging to standard out. Uh, and in that way, 
the platform can capture those logs and do whatever it needs to do with them. Uh, so you can run our CLI tool to tail the logs and just see what's what's happening there. Or you can uh, attach an add-on uh, from our add-on marketplace, which will capture those logs, uh, put them into a, a larger system that you can search and filter and have history for. Uh, that add-on marketplace also has uh, database services, caching services. Uh, we offer Kafka as a service. Um, so there's a whole suite of uh, what we call backing services that can be attached to your application. Uh, so the platform, um, but at the same time, the platform is just a Linux container running your app. So uh, if you need to run Microsoft SQL Server on Azure, you can connect to that from your Heroku application. There's no uh, restriction there. What is the billing mechanism like? I mean, how, how does it work? Well, the first tier is free. And it's not a free trial. It's it's free to use Heroku indefinitely. Uh, that's always been uh, <clears throat> sort of our model to encourage uh, developers to try Heroku. We think that every every developer should have a Heroku account and should be able to deploy and run an application in the cloud for free. Uh, the only time you need to start paying is when you want to either scale up or uh, add more resources to your application, more memory or uh, or CPU. Um, and the first tier is uh, $7 a month for what we call a hobby dyno. Uh, dyno is our term for container. Uh, it's just that Heroku was around before containers were popular, so we had to communicate that to people in a different way. Uh, so that hobby dyno is $7 a month. Uh, you can attach add-ons. We, we have free database add-ons, but um, you know, as you have more data in your application and, and more connections, you'll need to scale those up to paid plans as well. Uh, and then as you add more RAM, as you add more CPU, it, it just goes up from there to our very largest or, or most expensive offering, which is a virtual private cloud product. You sort of own little Heroku uh, running in isolation. Uh, so you get certain constraints about uh, networking and uh, you can do whitelist IPs for inbound and outbound uh, connections and things like that. You mentioned Dyno and you said that we, were, we had that before containers kind of blew up. So do you currently use Docker? No, internally, well, we have uh, beta support for Docker, but internally we're just using LXC and we've been using it for uh, quite a long time. Uh, it's what we use to run your application processes uh, on a multi-tenant instance, uh, but still in isolation. So uh, that gets back to when you're deploying on Heroku, you're not actually thinking about servers, you're thinking about processes, and those processes are running in our LXC container. Uh, so we have beta support for Docker, too. Um, so you can deploy a Docker image to Heroku, and we'll, uh, we actually have our own um, uh, Docker registry that you can Docker push to. Uh, we'll pull in that image and run it on our platform. Has there been a lot of demand for Docker? or I mean, is, because it's curious, you know, the, the whole world has jumped on this bandwagon. And, and you guys are saying, well, we got beta support and we're with, with LXE and we're doing pretty fine. Is, is there a demand for it or you just feel like it's a path that you should consider evaluating? Uh, there are a lot of people asking about it, that's for sure. Uh, but I also feel that a lot of the people that are asking about it are just that curious. Um, I, I, there's obviously people using, uh, using Docker 
Um, but it seems that the ratio of people who are interested to the people who are actually using it in production is a little skewed. Um, I, I think I think there are some major trade-offs in using Docker. So if you're using Docker on Heroku, um, you're giving up a little bit uh, because you're using your own Docker image. Uh, so as I said before, when you're running on our standard platform, you know we curate everything up through the JDK. But if you're running with a Docker image, uh, the operating system stack is now your responsibility. So if there is a system package in your Docker image that is out of date, has a security vulnerability in it, you're going to have to update that yourself in your Docker image. Uh, so the trade-off is that you've uh, opted to do more work, um, but you do get a little bit more flexibility. Uh, you can customize your image a little bit more. And I think that's what people who want Docker, that's what they mostly really want. Um, it's not that there's any, I don't think there's much value add in the container mechanism as compared to what we're doing with LXC. Um, I think it's just a, you know, a different, uh, different method. Yeah, makes sense. And one of the things that I was thinking just uh, the other day was regarding, you know, most of these platforms, including Heroku, you mentioned that you you know, have different tiers based on memory usage and CPU usage. And it occurred to me, like, how much impact potentially could something like coroutines in Kotlin have over the CPU usage, as opposed to using, for instance, threads? I'm not, I'm not sure if you've, if you've ever thought about that, or if, if it's even, you know, appreciable, the, the difference, but I think it would be interesting to benchmark because <clears throat> especially when you're running on our um, like our free tier or the hobby tier and you're running on these multi-tenant dynos, um, the the JVM is really good at making use of a multi-tenant CPU because <laughs> it you know it can it can grab more CPU time than uh, runtimes like Ruby that are that don't have such great concurrency primitives. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly what impact um, coroutines versus threads would uh, uh, would provide. Yeah, I think we got to get Roman. I'll, I'll ping Roman and say, "Hey, Roman." Yeah, it would be it would be a fun thing to uh, do some experiments with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I'm a JVM user or a Kotlin user and I want to get started with Heroku, like how do I deploy? Is it just a GitHub push or something like that? Or Git push. That's right. The uh, the most popular way to deploy to Heroku is uh, by provisioning a new application which associates a Git remote with your uh, local Git repository, and then you run Git push Heroku master, just like you would push to GitHub, but instead you're pushing your code to Heroku. Uh, and then when the code is received by our servers, we detect what kind of application it is. You don't have to tell us. We can see that there's a POM XML or a build.gradle. Um, and then we just go from there. And you're supporting uh, Gradle or Maven. Have you considered uh, the build system Cobalt? Have you heard? I mean, have you heard of Cobalt? Yeah, I've heard of it, but I, I haven't played with it much. Okay. At all. It's uh, <laughs> it's by uh, there was I was interviewing uh, Cedric Boost a couple of shows back about it, uh, and so it's it's inspired by Gradle. But it one of the things that he really wanted to focus on was actually around 
deployment and making it as easy as possible for developers. So it'll be interesting if you take a look at that uh, because, you know, having uh, that being able to deploy to Heroku might also increase adoption uh, from his side as well. So, yeah, I mean, he's very, also he's extremely great guy and open to anything, you know, like every, you, I, we were talking, I'm like, so how do you do this? It's like, well, they come to me with the use case and I implement it. So you can go to him and say, hey, Cedric, I got a use case. Can you implement it? <laughs> See if that works. Yeah, all we would need is a uh, Heroku build pack for Cobalt, which uh, probably isn't too much work. So, and the, and you said that also there's a free plan, so you want every developer in the world to have a Heroku account, so anyone can just get started and uh, play with this, deploy to this, and then if they want, upgrade to one of your uh, paid plans, right? That's right. Well, it definitely sounds like still you have a very great experience, and I think that's really important. You know, it, it kind of aligns with the same things that we've tried to do with Kotlin, you know, get rid of the friction and, and let people focus on on what they really want to do, right, which is solve business problems, and it feels like Heroku is exactly the same goal mentality. So that's that's great. Yeah, I agree. Well, it was great having you on the show, Joe, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me.